Hello, and welcome to the Wild Blue Podcast, perspectives on aviation lives, lifestyles, and business. Hi, this is Chris Kirk at Wild Blue Aircraft Sales, and you are listening to the Wild Blue Podcast, where we focus on aviation lives, lifestyles, and business. And you know, each week we sometimes banter back and forth within the office. Hopefully you find it both entertaining uh, and or you learn something. Uh, and then oftentimes we uh, have the pleasure of interviewing uh, others within aviation. Some are clients, some are just folks that we found a uh, deep interest in and, and want to share that with you. And I think we kind of hit all of those boxes with this week's interview. In fact, we're going to cut this into two parts. Uh, so it will be uh, uh, this month and then next month as well. And uh, this uh, this podcast is with Frank Weiser. This interview is with Frank Weiser. Now, Frank is a uh, recently retired Navy pilot, and he flew two tours with the Blue Angels. And so he has got a tremendous amount of uh, uh advice, but uh, just a a lot of fun stories to share with us. You know, Frank's a great guy. Several years ago, uh, I called upon him to set my son with his Civil Air Patrol unit up for a kind of an in-person greeting or meet and greet with the the Blues when they were in town. And he just uh, was just so gracious in facilitating that and so Frank is also a customer of ours. Frank uh, bought a uh, 58 Baron from us. And he's, he's just got some interesting things. This is not an interview you're going to want to, to miss. Todd and I did this uh, uh, earlier in the summer and, uh, and finally getting it posted for your enjoyment. And again, it's a two-part interview. So uh, enjoy Todd Mitten and, uh, and my interview with Frank Weiser. Hi, this is Chris Kirk with uh, Todd Mitten here in Kansas City, and we are doing the Wild Blue Podcast. Hey, Chris, how are you today? Good, Todd. And it's always good to be with you. You know, Todd's the most interesting guy on earth, so <laughs> despite who, whoever we might have well, as a... I uh, think our guests are more interesting than <laughs> so us. We focus on aviation lives, lifestyles, and business, and uh, and this is a really special episode. We have Frank Weiser. Frank, I'm not even going to give any background on you or how we know each other. I don't want to screw anything up. Give us a sense of who you are and what your background is. Okay, well, right on. Thanks first for having me. I'm excited to be a part of this with you guys. Uh, I have been flying ever since the Navy trained me in 2000. So I'm a graduate of the Naval Academy. Went to school there to uh, initially to be a Navy SEAL, and the Navy decides what you're best suited for, and they chose aviation for me. So I straight out of the Naval Academy down to flight school, and I've been flying for the Navy ever since. And that was um, just over 21 years ago. And so my retirement is scheduled for the end of this month, end of August. And I've stayed on active duty for the last three years to transition the Blue Angels from the legacy F-18 they've been flying to the Super Hornet. And that became my role because I've flown with them on two separate tours prior to that from 2007 to 10 as a junior officer. And then again, as a commander from 2016 to 17, following the team had in Tennessee. So in case you didn't hear that, oh, wait a minute. Yeah, let's say what he say. <laughs> I know that was you kind of you just kind of you know glossed over that. So in, in case in case you didn't hear that listening, uh, Frank was the commander of the Blue Angels, and he served two tours with the Blues, and and recently have been just wrapping up your active duty commitment with them. So so I wasn't actually the commander of them. I was a commander on the team, just in rank alone. Now the okay, gotcha. Had been a lifelong friend of mine. 
And um, I came back as, as that rank because the opposing solo pilot crashed at an air show in Smyrna, Tennessee. Right. And so the challenge the Blue Angels have is if something like that happens, whether it's a medical issue or a mishap, whatever the case might be, it always takes too long to train up someone new. The training sequence for us is somewhere close to five months for new pilots. And so we have to go into the Rolodex of people who've flown that position in the past. At the time it happened, I was working for NATO and stationed overseas in Southern Germany. And so I was probably low on the list of, of um, good candidates only because it had been a couple of years since I'd flown. And I was on a joint job, which the military requires you to do as you move up through the ranks. Um, but for various reasons, I was asked to come back and um, fill in for both of Jeff's two years that remained on his parental tour. And what, what position were you playing? At the time, I joined back as number six. And then the way the Blue Angels rotate, generally you start as number seven, the VIP pilot narrator, and then you move to the opposing solo. And then your final year, you're the operations officer and the lead solo. And so you can't, the lead solo is training the opposing solo. So it'd be hard to have two students get essentially the following year. So um, generally six becomes five. I just cannot imagine. I mean, I having spent a little time around air show related stuff very minor compared to anything what you've done but uh i can't imagine that the way you guys as as hard as you got to work every flight and how you you know brief debrief do it all again tomorrow fly it the whole all the keeping up the the positive image how was that to come back you had to, when you were done with that there had to be a level the first time there had to be a level of like wow man <laughs> That was great. I don't want to do that again. That was fun. <laughs> they come back, or or was it like, no, man, I I'd do that in a heartbeat. I'll come back next year. Whatever. How? Tell us about your thoughts. That's actually a great question that requires a lot of insight into the team because I think most people, whether you're Navy or Air Force or a civilian, look at it and say it looks like an incredible job and just all fun and, and very little work. But once you join, it becomes it's actually a lot more work than you think and. I probably had some of the standard misconceptions. I figured they were is an incredibly arrogant group, and I figured they were cowboys in the sky. And I figured that um, it was just a you know hour long flat hatting adventure in, in an F eighteen. And what I and I actually went to my first I'd say interview, but really we do these uh, weekends where you get to know the team and a chance to determine if you kind of uh, gel well with each other. And I kind of said to my wife, I said, you know, I'm going to go meet everybody but if it's what i think it's going to be then maybe we just we, we say we tried it but we, we you know go our separate ways and i was blown away right away that the, the team was incredibly nice and kind and generous to me as just an applicant and that um, they took the flying far more seriously than i imagined and then came to learn that it was obviously we will say things like everything revolves around the demonstration meaning everything every good team first starts with a good demonstration and then all good things come from that uh, so the flying is paramount and um, becomes the singular most important aspect of what we do. And then, like you mentioned, it, it is you find there that it's not necessarily about the air show. The air show is just a mechanism or a means of giving you the credibility to speak about your service. What I mean by that is if I just walked around in a green flight suit, I wouldn't have an opportunity to really intermingle with young men and women and tell them about what I do. And if I had a blue flight suit on that's skin tight, maybe they look at you for a second and think you're a, a circus performer. But if they've just seen you fly a 45-minute air show and do things they didn't think were possible in an airplane, and they watch you climb out and come over to them and you know sign a Blue Angel hat or talk to them about why you really love serving, it all of a sudden gives you the credibility to have these conversations and to explain to them not just that 
you, none of us join the Navy to fly blue airplanes. You join the Navy to support men and women on the ground in combat. And it's just one unique way to continue serving in between those tours. You can't have someone stationed on aircraft carrier for 20 straight years. It's just not feasible for a lot of reasons. So on our short tours, it, it's one of those opportunities. And so for that reason alone, you feel very proud to represent your service, but also you take the responsibility very seriously. That, uh, that's a, some great insight. And I, I do know from personal contact for a lot of years of flying air shows, as, as uh, I've mentioned to you before, we've, we dropped the leapfrogs a lot, another Navy parachute demonstration team. And, and so I had interaction, sat in, in briefings or whatever, saw you guys a lot. And you, you did the air show up in St. Joe, Missouri in the past. I mean, the Blue Angels, not so you, but no, I think you were there maybe. I was there for that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and that's exactly true. I mean, these guys are, are really good guys. I mean, for what they do, the skill level and the concentration, all that, yet they're step, step out of the jet. They, yeah. were, they were happy to, happy to talk to anybody, even if you were a lowly navigator like me, man. I, I tell you what, nothing, uh, uh, I have nothing but the highest of respect for you, for what you guys do. And, and I always, you know, to be honest, easily my favorite demonstration. Oh yeah. Yeah. And, and Todd and I are both air force guys. But, yeah. uh, so um, uh, Frank, you, you said something there and, and I just want to kind of echo this because you were kind enough a couple of years ago, it's about two years ago or three, it's freaking hottest air show I've ever been to. <laughs> it, was, it was miserable. I mean, it was miserable. People were falling, you know, left and right. So you had set up a, uh, a thing for uh, for my son's Civil Air Patrol group to to go up and get to meet the, the team members and everything. You know, so here these guys are standing outside their jets. We're standing in, in this line that's kind of segregated from the rest of the show. It's no kidding, 103, and it's like 95% humidity. It was just, it was awful. Uh, but, you know, there they are you know, looking sharp, got the hats on, you know, the whole nine yards. And they were just as gracious as they could be to, to try to, you know, work a group of 15 or 20 people into getting a picture and, and getting to talk to them a little bit. So it was, it was a great experience. And, and I, I hope I thanked you before, but I want to thank you again for that. Cause that was, that was really neat. And, but it, did, you know, it did demonstrate you know, exactly what you're talking about. It's funny with those pictures. We do that for very close family and friends at, following Friday and Saturday performances and practices. Uh, it always felt to me a little bit like the Christmas story when the poor kid climbs up the stairs and then he sees Santa and he can they you know, foot in the face and he's down the, the, the slide because we rush people through that. But of course, that's never the intent. We're, especially when it's our friends come up, you'd love to you know, hug them and, and hang out with them and show them around the airplane and all, all that. But then what's what follows that is a two-hour debrief, and what follows that is a two-hour event with the air show. And generally, that's you know up on the stage where they're making presentations and they're taking care of their sponsors and their their other performers. And generally, they're having to wait for the blues to make it because they want to introduce the team. So you always have these timelines, and that's kind of what I was speaking to earlier. Is it when I would ask our new check-ins and say, you know, you've you've now been a part of this team for six months, but now you're actually traveling with us. What do you think about it? And to a person, would say it's a lot busier than I thought. And we get to fly a lot. You might fly four or 500 hours a year, but it is not a team where you have any other activities going on. You give up all hobbies, your family, you, you, to some degree, you give up your family, except for the nights, the mornings, if they pay to travel at their own expense to come to the shows, it's just a really busy time. And you might work on a Saturday or Sunday, something like eight or 10 hours to log a point five. And literally you'll, you'll go in at 1130 or 12 and you won't come back until eight or nine at night. 
and you've flown a flat show because the weather mandated a flat show and you put a 0.5 in your logbook and you spent all day on the weekend. And, 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 and it's it really challenging, but it's not a way to get flight time fast, that's for sure. Every Saturday and Sunday, almost during air show season, there's hardly a break, is there? I bet. I, I just, no, we would generally, um, we would take a break at Easter weekend and a break in August, and that would be it for the team. And then following the mishap and the desire to have some, a little bit more rest, I think we'll take maybe two more weekends off. But those, weekend, those weeks become busy because then you're home and you're, you're still flying every day, but you're home. So it's a bit of a blessing and a curse to some degree. What, yeah. what gave you that you mentioned the first time you were thinking about joining? I mean, I understand you're a fighter pilot. Every, every fighter pilot has to have a level of confidence that's beyond the remotely the norm. But what gave you the confidence originally when you went to sort of rush the, the, the team, so to speak, uh, that you might be a fit for this? You know, I actually didn't put as much thought into it, perhaps, as you already have. Um, I've flown F-18s off aircraft carriers, and I firmly believe that if you can fly off aircraft carriers day and night, especially at night, and you know, support the men and women on the ground in combat, then for sure you can fly an air show. Uh, we generally refer to your most intense minutes or seconds as a Navy pilot are, are landing on an aircraft carrier at night. And, so, and th- that's a case where your focus is so laser-like and, and so... Um, uninterrupted on anything else. You know, you're not at half a mile or on short final thinking about what's for dinner or, or what you got going on in your life or you got to do this or that. And so I would equate that level of concentration of focus to the air show and almost the entire air show. You might have a few seconds for what we call shake it out. You know, you're behind the crowd. They can't see you. You're in a slightly relaxed formation, but still a formation far tighter than anything you'd fly in the fleet. And you have just a mental and a physical break for three seconds. But the rest of the time, it's very, very focused. And what the crowd generally sees for the maneuvers are the easy part. It's what you do getting set up for the next maneuver, generally speaking, the high aspect rendezvous that have to happen. I mean, that's the case where you've been in front of the crowd for a maneuver as a solo pilot and you're rejoining the diamond for the next maneuver. And it is a 180 degree angle off seven and a half G rendezvous. And if you, if you make even a minor mistake, you're not going to make that rendezvous. And then here you are. It, it's really easy as the crowd to tell that you didn't make it because there are four airplanes really tight and there you're not. And so it's all, I always equate, equated it to like having the stage, you know, open and you're sitting there with your, with your pants down going, uh Oh, and you don't want to be caught like that. So those rendezvous can be very, not just challenging, but also uh, nerve wracking too. So uh, that level of focus uh, was more than I expected to answer your original question. I, I didn't anticipate the air show being as challenging to fly as it is and as, uh, as, in, as intense. Do you guys debrief a lot of that, especially those mistakes? Everything. We'll spend, the brief will take an hour. The debrief almost always is two hours. And, and you'll go through, what we do is we'll have certain aircraft can use their uh, heads-up display debrief tools more than the rest. If you're a wingman, maybe flying the left or right wing, it's not really important what you're seeing um, straight in front of you because you're not you're always looking left or right for five and six and certainly for number one it definitely matters what you're seeing straight ahead because that profile very much matters but then what we often what we use more than anything is a camera that is um, filmed by one of our crew at center point and so it doesn't really matter I could come back to debrief and say well that's not what I saw but it really doesn't matter because it's what the crowd sees that matters and so we'll do everything we'll debrief ourselves off what the crowd sees not what we see Okay, so for, for the novices that haven't flown an air show before, when you guys do the high-speed passes in opposing directions, and you are usually doing, I don't know, is it an aileron roll, show center, or something like that? Sure. What kind of offset do you have? 
When we start, the, the very first time we practice, generally is five will set the line, meaning five is, is predictable on altitude on a heading. And we'll almost always, our best air shows have a runway as the show line. You know, the FAA requirement for a Cat 1 performer, which means us, a high-speed performer, is 1,500 feet. That's waverable down to 1,200 feet from the crowd if there's a natural show line, meaning a runway or a road. But generally, we're at 1,500 feet. And, and generally, runways, if you're on a military field, they're almost always 200 feet. Civilian fields, you'll generally get a 150-foot runway. At, with some small exceptions, you're down to 100 feet. And so when we start training, generally five will be on the inboard edge of the runway and six will be on the outboard edge. One of the things you do, and then like you said, it'll be an aileron roll into each other. And so one of the things we do before we ever oppose each other is number six will be learning how to roll his aircraft in a zero G roll, meaning there's no lateral displacement. Because what would happen is if you're in level flight, you're still at one G. And if you push your stick all the way over to the left, even if you attain zero G at some point during that roll, the point when you're transitioning from level flight to that role, you have some positive G there. And so your aircraft would definitely, if you just flew over a runway on the runway center line and tried an aileron roll, as you rolled out, you'd probably see that you've, you've shifted or transitioned slightly left, yeah. assuming you're doing a left roll. And maybe pilots can generally only turn left. So we stick with that as a rule of thumb. But um, there's a trick to rolling that aircraft around its own axis. And, it, and it's very counterintuitive of what we've always done. So we'll spend 20 or 30 sorties practicing that exact thing where five flies directly below six. And then it's very obvious if six moves or whether they uh, full 360 roll, whether it's a 90 year roll to a knife edge, whether it's a roll to, to inverted where you hold it, that sort of thing. We'll train to, uh, you know, for a long time to make sure you're doing that. And then once we oppose each other, even if you're only 200 feet apart, you know you're not having positive G into one another. But by the time we're ready for show season, you're generally to half that separation. And then certainly by the end of the season, we try to methodically as we get more and more comfortable with each other's uh, tendencies and trends, we get closer and closer. The closer you are at the cross, the easier it is to make it appear that you're exactly nose to nose. Because the crowd is looking up, and if you're if the lead aircraft, the closest one is 200 feet, well, the next one has to be about 213 feet if you're 100, if you're 100 feet apart. And that gives you the impression through the angle of your eye looking up that the right. Yeah, yeah. right. And so there's a lot of optical illusions kind of going on there. If we're really high, then the outboard aircraft has to be incredibly high. And if you're, I mean, it's trigonometry uh, at its, at, in an aviation sense for us to do that. So the closer you get, the easier it is to have a nice hit. That's, uh, that is fascinating. Yeah. You know, and Chris flew T-38s course and, and flew a lot of formation. I, 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 in a 130, it was always 2,000 feet, but then, and then I finally started flying some in a Bonanza, you know, with one of those groups and, and uh, gosh darn, the more I did it, the more I just my respect for what you guys do just grows and grows and grows. And it just is a, that, that kind of thought process going on is, is incredible. You know, how, how, and so you, how did you, how do you roll it around? Uh, so we call it a yug, meaning you take the stick and you pull the stick back a fraction of an inch and pulling it back doesn't really matter. It's what happens after that. So it's a really quick yug, meaning you pull it back almost as fast as you can to get a, so fast that there's no displacement at all. But what really happens next is you push the stick forward to counter the aft stick. And in pushing it forward, you can achieve zero G. Okay. And so right as you achieve zero G, then you go into your roll. So if you watch the aircraft from the side, if we did it right, you wouldn't really see any displacement up or down at all. Because before you've even, um, before the aircraft has a chance to respond by climbing, you've already pushed it back. But in pushing it back, you achieve zero G and then you go straight into your roll. And so that generally does the trick for us. 
um, you're in zero G as you start your role instead of one G as you start your role. Huh. Yeah, that's, that's you know, at the uh, at Oshkosh, uh, Todd and I were up there last week. So uh, whenever this airs, we're actually recording this here in, uh, in early August of 2021. But Todd and I were up at Oshkosh last week and there was a, uh, a long easy that was doing a, uh, a show. And, you know, the, the I guess it'd be the aspect ratio. The, the wing length as compared to the, the actual the fuselage is so out of balance to most airplanes. Mm-hmm. That, that guy was putting on a pretty good show. But because of his his of that ratio, I, I was watching him I, and I could see him making the most minor of changes of, of corrections on that. And it, it, after a while, frankly, it kind of started driving me nuts because, uh, you know, it's like, you know, and, and I, you know, I, most people probably didn't see it, but um, you, could, you could really tell that he was he was just trying to get it just right. But gosh, you know, when those wings are so much longer than the fuselage, you can just see the, the slightest little variation in, in what they're doing. For sure. Yeah, it's more noticeable, right? No doubt. Yeah. So I'm going to admit that the, really one of my also favorite parts of the whole Blue Angels show, and I, I actually have a recording. I took my iPhone out and, and recorded this one, and I, and I have it. That, when, when you guys taxi out and the last and of course the narrator is doing a great job explaining everything but when they go in cockpit and and <laughs> do that little that little uh litany that, that they go through trim is set boss uh, you know and he runs through the, the winds are that's a crosswind from the left and uh and and then uh, presumably the uh the commander i'm not sure i guess uh, lead is right. running through the the little litany there on trim is set and whatever. I just that gosh darn it, I get goosebumps just singing. <laughs> <laughs> that's kind of a that's key cool to hear. Thing. You never know, and the cockpit's always quite different, so you never know if people are listening or not. But yeah, that's we, we bring people inside, we bring the crowd inside the cockpit a few times during the show, and that, that's cool that you're able to hear it and, and appreciate it. That's a that is a that's a highlight for me. And we my- don't fly with checklists, you know. That's so that's an important one. Everything is memorized. All the all the checklist items, whether it's a maneuver checklist or just a general takeoff landing kind of checklist is memorized and they're all done with the set rhythm and connotation. So you develop some muscle memory and some habit patterns there. So the, the only way you get yourself in trouble is you, if, if you get yourself out, that's true in all of aviation. If, mm-hmm. if you ever have yep. to deviate from the checklist, you almost have to go back and start the whole thing over just to make sure you haven't missed something. And right. so we do the same thing. Yeah. It's the most minor of little things that get you in trouble. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For sure. Thanks for listening to the Wild Blue Podcast. Find us online at flywildblue.com. And don't forget to subscribe and share.